Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. I'm here with a very special guest. I know I say that every week and all my guests are special, but this week is unique because I've got a member of mi familia on the podcast with me. Uh, Today, I'm joined by my sister, Sharice Jackson. Sharice, it is such an honor to have you on this show. Thank you for being here today. Yo, it's more of an honor to be on your show than, you know, like to be here and to speak with you and to share with your audience and all of that. And while we're talking, let me just say how proud of you I am. I appreciate that. Seriously. That means means a lot. It it does. Um, And Sharice is the host of the Inconvenient Truth podcast uh, with her husband, Early. And she's also the HR uh, director and senior editor for Frackle Media Group, uh, which is a media company. Um, So she brings a whole host of expertise, great perspective to this interview. And we're going to be talking about a wide range of topics um, stemming from family to social justice. And so I'm excited. Without further ado, we're going to jump right in. You know what, Ben, I have to say this. And I know I didn't say it beforehand, but I think my husband would be a little slighted if I didn't say that I also own a company with him. (laughs) New Direction Coaching Associates. (laughs) Yeah, that's an important plug. We got, we got to get that out there. <laughs> I don't direction. want to have to go see Judge Lynn Toller after this, you know. Right, right. Yeah, you don't want that, that trouble. Oh, that's great. Uh, thank you for adding that. Thank you for adding that. Um, so, Sharice, you and I got connected, what, has it been two years ago now, three it's years ago? Two, it's been about two, maybe even two and a, l- a little over that. Okay. Ago. Okay. Yeah. So, so for those that don't know, which is probably most of you, uh, Sharice and I are, are half siblings and we didn't get connected um, until two to three years ago. Um, so I'll tell kind of my part of the story and how I remember connecting with you and then I'll let you do the same on your entry. So that's not good. That sounds great. Okay. Um, so when I was about 28, um, I, I decided that I was going to try to get in touch with my biological father. Now, for those that don't know, I hadn't seen him since I was maybe two and a half or three. I still don't know the whole story, but from what I've pieced together, there was some falling out between him and my mom and she got a restraining order and kind of took my sibling and I uh, away. And so I grew up, I spent like the next seven years not knowing that I had, I didn't know he existed. I I just had no idea I had forgotten him. I felt my stepdad was my biological dad. It wasn't until I got into foster care that I was told that um, some of my siblings and I had different father. And I was, I was nine year old. My mom, mind was blown. I'm like, wait, what are you even talking? How's that possible? You know, I couldn't quite compute. Um, But I was also told that I didn't want anything to do with my, my biological dad, that he was somehow worse than my stepfather. Um, if that is true, I, I will never know. My stepfather was pretty monstrous individual. So uh, I'm not sure how they judge that. Regardless, that's the story that I received. Uh, and so I kind of, I never tried to find him, kept my distance. Um, but his, his sister, my, my aunt, um, Sandra, reached out to me probably 
I don't even remember, maybe 2012-ish, um, her mom, my grandma, was getting older and she wanted my sister and I to meet him or meet her. And I kind of declined because, again, I'm, I'm thinking this is a dangerous family. I'm not trying to, to mess with that. I was just getting my life together. Um, but when I was 28, I started really thinking about my health. You know, I, I knew all the health problems on my mom's side of the family and there were some pretty serious ones. And so it didn't make sense to not know what was on my dad's side of the family. I didn't know if there were any like life-threatening illnesses that were lurking in the background there. So I decided to reach out. I reached out to my Aunt Sandra. She and I are talking. Um, I get an Ancestry.com. And um, I don't, re- this is the part that I don't remember. I need your help filling me in, Sharice. I don't remember if it was Sandra that um, connected us or, or I, I know I started finding out that I had these half siblings kind of scattered throughout the country, uh, Tracy, you, eventually Eric. And I just don't remember specifically how I got connected and we had that first phone call. So help me fill in well, that gap. Eric connected us. Eric, Eric was the one that connected us? Yeah. Well, he connected us because he was the one who contacted me. And that's how I got different numbers and different names. And I believe he reached out to you. And like you said, you was like, nope, not having it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. You know, I saw, I had, you know, a portion of information. So I had looked you up, saw the stuff that you do. And I was like, yo, too many similarities. I'm reaching out to him. And for real, I'm just, uh, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Given, for real, both of our lives, how many no's have we had to face and just overcome? So I just went for it. And I knew that going into it, because it had to be kind of awkward for all of us. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to make sure that I said everything right. And because I know from what I've heard, and I even finally went to see him, you know, how much of an, uh, what's the good word? Just mess. (laughs) Our our (laughs) biological father is. So I wanted to make sure that you understood that I only wanted to connect to you because you're my brother and that it had nothing to do with him. And I'm not sure if that was the key or not, but that's what, that's how we got connected. I hit you up on Facebook. Yep. And I, I remember Eric, because cause, uh, it was after I'd taken a DNA test, Eric was doing some research and he had found like a company that would compare your DNA results. And so he'd pieced together that we were probably half siblings because of our DNA mm-hmm. results. So Sandra was like, hey, this dude saying he's your half brother. Can I connect y'all? And I was like, mm. <laughs> 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 mm, I don't know about all that. <laughs> Eric and I did eventually <laughs> connect. So. <laughs> We finally connected, which is good. But yeah, I was I was skeptical. I'm like, mm, what's what's going on here? Um, but, and that, I mean, bro, that's so normal. That's so yeah. normal. Yeah. And I, I have this thing where uh, I I'm automatically distrustful of people that are too excited to to see me. I'm like, why why you don't even know me? Why are you so excited? Uh, <laughs> so that was, that was kind of going on for a minute. Um, but I remember our first phone call. Like I, I remember because I was standing in my backyard, kind of pacing back and forth, and I recall how how well we vibed. And to your point, like the similarities that that we both shared in our lives, even though we're, I don't know, 15, 20 years apart, maybe in right? side of the country. Don't say it like that. Come on, Ben. Come on. Is that what we're doing today? I didn't, I didn't say he was older. <laughs> um, but just the the connection. Uh, it still still amazes me, and and I really appreciate that. And I just recall like leaving that first phone call, feeling a sense of a deep connection, of appreciation that you had that you'd reached out and that we'd connected, um, and feeling like I had an ally. You know, even though I didn't know you that well, it just kind of that's the vibe I got from our conversation. And so I'm, you know, and and I, you know I'm still grateful for that relationship. So I'm, I'm so glad that you did end up reaching out. 
I'm so glad I did too. For real, after we hung up that day, I was elated. Like I was just like, yes. So I am like so happy that happened. And for real, at the end of the day, when I think about this, uh, Eugene, you know, our father, whatever, um, <laughs> I can say, you know what? I can't even be upset with just all of the things that he's done and all, you know, just who he is because he gave me somebody like you. Mm. So if, if nothing else, I'm grateful that he was my father because I get Ben as a brother. I got, you know, other other siblings that I, I had no knowledge of. Now, what's weird about the whole thing was Tracy Dixon and I went to school together. Really? <laughs> we, we graduated together. <laughs> wow, I had no idea. So Tracy's another one of our half-sisters, so they're sort of listening. That that blows my mind. Yeah, wow. and um, I learned, you know, and I, I don't want to jump the gun and kind of jump into this, but I remember growing up how my mother... Like she had a lot of excuses on why she wouldn't come to this or she couldn't come to that. I'm like, oh, well, you sure are busy, you know, but she couldn't come to a lot of the things that I, I, uh, like, you know, I did a lot of talent, I've done a lot of things, just kind of, you know, our family's kind of talented or whatever. And she wouldn't show up. She came to graduation, but she wouldn't show up to the smaller things. He worried that he would be there because he was actually married to Tracy's, uh, I mean, to Tracy's mother. So my mom was always afraid because of how abusive he was that he would be there. So she was afraid to come to any events. And I just learned that literally about two years ago. Wow, man. So knowing more of that, that family history puts kind of some of what you went through into perspective. Yeah. God, so, I can't. You know, it, it's, it's wild. So even with him kind of coming back around, what I learned later was that once she found out that we had... I have to say reconnected because somehow or another we had to have been connected. But, mm -hmm. you know, for me, it's just the connection. But, you know, when you reconnected, my mom was really scared because the last time she saw him, she was trying to escape from him. Wow. So she hadn't seen him in all that time now, and she just got really fearful. And I believe she thought somehow or another that was going to bring him back in her world after she had been hiding all of this time. Yeah, man. So that was traumatic for her, you know. That's a heavy weight to live under. For years, look how many years she lived under that. And that explains so much of the disconnect mm -hmm. that we had. For a long time, I just figured, for real, I'm outgoing. I'm a people person. My mom is an introvert at the highest level. <laughs> you know? And I'm learning now that maybe she wasn't always an introvert. She was just trying to kind of stay low because she was afraid of, you know, him and anybody connected to him finding her. Yeah. But you know, me being so social and like going here and going there, that was a little scary for her. Sure. I bet, man. And so um, when did you get to reconnect with our, our dad? What, how long ago was that? It was before I spoke to you. So I guess a little, two years, a little over that. Okay. I, I didn't see him until when I went home in October, I saw him Okay. for the first time. And I would, venture to say for the last time upright you know mm. <laughs> um yeah when he's laying flat i'm sure i'll you know i'll go to that because then i'll get to see my siblings <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I, I saw him in october and you know truthfully you know good bad or indifferent if i don't see him again i'm you know i'm okay right right that's so interesting so um last time he and i spoke was I don't even remember. It had to be at least a year ago. He kind of dropped off the map. The phone numbers that I have for him no longer work. He don't, can't get a hold of him on social media. So like he just vanished. I presumed he's still alive because I figured I would have heard if he died by now, you know, but like. <laughs> <laughs> he is still alive. I, I kind of know what's happening sometimes because of Eric. 
Okay. Okay. Um, he he. When did he call me? He called me maybe three, four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But you know, sometimes it's not even worth the effort to try to even call him back because that number will be gone and won't work. Yep. And it's just it's so much effort that I feel like you know, as as the the daughter, mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to put in more effort than you, sir. Yep. You know, so yeah. I you know at this and at this stage of my life, I don't necessarily need a a father figure if that makes any sense. I'm good and grown. Yep. You know, so if you want to be a part of my life and you just want to be connected, you know, I'm good with that. But I'm not going to, uh, God knows, I'm not going to do any extra right. stuff to make it happen. Right. It's um, unique to have you on as a guest because it's, it's rare that both my guests and I can kind of speak to the experience of feeling uh, parentless at times in our lives to to, you know, inheriting kind of experiencing domestic abuse, you know, and so as you, as you think about what you've been through, I'm wondering what words you might say to especially young women, maybe specifically young black women that might find themselves in similar shoes. What are some words of inspiration or encouragement that you wish you had had, you know, when you're 15, 20, 25, that you would offer, you know, to them now? Well, you know, one thing that I can say, and I know this sounds so cliche, but keep living, (laughs) Don't give up because for real, when you're under that that umbrella of any kind of abuse, especially when, you know, whether, because we can't really measure, oh, this is more abusive, but that's less abusive when it's, when it's an individual situation. So any type of, of abuse, suicide is always right there, that they're, they, they're partners, you know, they're kissing cousins, if I may say. Yeah. So yeah. just keep living. And at the end of it, one thing that you see that you'll find if you do keep living because a lot of times, this is what I tend to tell people. What happens to us sometimes, um, we can't understand it. But so it's not known the reason behind what's going on in our lives. Like the stuff I went through while I was going through it, I had no idea what it was, what was going on with that. But later, it's, t- it's typically revealed, if that makes any sense. Because everything that we go through, we go through for a reason. And I'm, I would venture to say that even though it seems like, you know, okay, every day is just the worst day. If you stop and just really think about all of the things that have happened that you can be grateful for, that typically shifts your perspective. Even in the darkest moments, it shifts your perspective because there's always something to live for. And if you don't see it, keep walking. And sometimes you, as you take a step, you get a little bit of light. You get a little bit more light, a little bit more light. But there's all, if, if you weren't supposed to be here, you wouldn't be here. If you were supposed to have died or you were supposed to have been aborted, you wouldn't be here because God is way bigger than, you know, our little scope of life. And so I typically tell people, you know, even through our business, like, okay, I know things seem crazy right now. And it seems like, okay, why? what people tend to say is, why me? And what I tend to tell people is, you don't see it, but you're built for this. Because the smallest things that you could have gone through and gone through in life, the fact that you're still here proves that you're a survivor and that you are out, you've outsmarted what came to kill you. Because there are people who have died from, from some of the simple things that we just both of us have been through in life, not even just the bigger things, some of the little things. And we look back at little now, but they weren't so little then. But there are people who have died from that. And here we are, triumphant. Even if it's just triumph in the moment. Because every day, it's, it's moment by moment, minute by minute, you know, it's not, you, you can't look at the long, the long picture sometimes and say, okay, well, I don't see where, I'm, I don't see how this is going to benefit me. I don't see where I'm going to be in five years. Well, where are you today? 
let's just take today minute by minute and be grateful that we're still here and look around you and see that sometimes we go through stuff it's not even for us it's for the next person because i've gone through some stuff that if you just if i'm just gonna try to figure out how it benefited me <laughs> you know i would be in you know a world of trouble and i would be confused and i would be suicidal but because i know that my life is way bigger than who I am because we're built for relationships. So my life is way bigger than me. And the things that I've gone through aren't just for me. Did they do something for me? Did they build character? Did they strengthen me? Did they teach me how strong I was in some of my darkest times? Yes. But after that, then what? Who am I going to share with? Because my story can be, it can change the narrative for somebody else. And if I can do that, I'm all for it. So I don't shy away from my story. Um, and for real, just people, just shame off of you. So whatever you've gone through, whatever is going on, shame off you because the shame is what causes people to look for cover. The shame is what causes people to feel like, oh, what did I do to deserve this? Oh, I'm this horrible person. No, shame off you. Because once you remove the shame, guilt goes along with it and you can move on through life. I said a whole lot. Did I answer your question at all? <laughs> <laughs> you did. I said it like four times. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Um, and 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 as you were speaking, I I felt your heart and the ways in which it's aligned with mine. You know, I I'm aware that in many ways I exist as an exception to a lot of rules, right? And that that most people that start life like I did don't get where I am if they survive at all. Um, and so I think myself, like a lot of other people that are trauma survivors, we, we want to make meaning of our pain. And one of the ways that we do that is by finding others that share similar pain, right? And trying to offer them hope, trying to, to help them find their way out um, so that we are not just the lone exceptions to this rule. Um, and, and some of the most wonderful works of creation have been birthed out of a place of healing, right? From pain. Absolutely. And so even though we're, we, you know, I carry this with me day in and day out. And some days I'm like, damn, when will the healing stop? Like, damn, mm -hmm. how much longer, how many more lessons do I have to learn? There, there are other moments where I'm deeply connecting with someone else that's hurting and I know it, it matters to them. I'm like, okay, like I will continue to shoulder this burden. I'll continue to do this hard work internally for those moments because, because that shit matters deeply to me, you know? You know, but even for that, like, the stuff that, and I know because I'm, I deal with trauma, so I know PTSD. I know how all of that works. This is what's so awesome about it. If I didn't know your story, the stuff you're doing, we wouldn't even see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. And, and what's so crazy about that is sometimes when we look in the mirror, and when I say mirror, I don't mean necessarily a glass mirror, but just the mirror of our own lives. And it looks like, okay, I'm a mess. I'm still dealing with this or I'm dealing with that. And the people that we're ministering to or we're sharing with, they don't even notice, you know. And yeah. and I think of just that, you know, that's just how good, that's how good God is, that he could design a life like ours and still let it shine. Like, how are these, how are these lights shining? Oh, they're shining through the cracks. Mm. You know, I get it. Yeah. But lights are shining through the cracks of our lives that other people, all they see is the brightness. They don't always see the, the cracks. Yep. That's so such wonderful imagery it's shining through the cracks. It reminds me of, um, I don't, I doubt Tupac invented this, but you know, the rose that uh, grows between concrete. Yeah. Right? Yep. That, and that, yeah, that's what life feels like a lot of the time. 
And you know, so that, that brings me to this idea, this connection with, brought with society at large, right? Because you are very much uh, about justice, societal justice. Um, All about it, yeah. That's like at the heart of who I perceive you to be. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, can you talk about when you sense yourself beginning to wake up to the need to orient yourself more externally and to, to become a more vocal advocate and activist for that justice work? When, when did that start to, to shift or become a core part of your identity? Well, justice has always kind of been been hanging in the balance, if that makes any sense. So it's been something that I, you know, I'd advocate for. I'd advocate for the homeless person. I'd advocate for so many different people because I've been through so many different things. And so, I mean, I'm the one that if I'm driving down the street and somebody's standing there with a bucket and I'm looking at them, I don't care what they're going to do with the money. If they want to buy a joint and have a good night, whatever, I'm giving you the money because I've been homeless. You know, mm-hmm. so kind of going through traumatic things, and I'm sure you can attest to it, that it causes us to be less judgmental and have way more grace for people because we know how we, the things we've gone through and just how grace has covered us. And when I say grace, I mean even from other people, organizations, whatever has covered us and has mentored us. So I've always been about helping the underdog. Now for, say, stuff like police brutality, I... I God, I've seen, I've seen it because it's just been all over, you know, the airwaves, even just genre, even, even before it was on social media, you know, my age, yeah. it was on the news. <laughs> so it just took, it took longer to get to us. And I think the difference was, even though it took longer to get to us because it wasn't citizen, a citizen's video, it was altered. So yeah. we only saw a little bit of it. But even then I could say, this is crazy. This, this is horrible. But I didn't even know how bad it was. I guess how current it was until my husband, like me, I mean, I'm a speaker. So, you know, I, I can, I can get out of a ticket. That's right. uh, at least I could before. I don't know. If <laughs> <climbing>, maybe, <laughs> But I would get like stopped by the cops. I mean, I would be speedy, like on the turnpike and be like, okay, what am I going to say? You know, just thinking it through as yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm getting out of this ticket. That's what I'm thinking. And if I didn't get out of it, we're going to lower it, you know? Right. Right. And so I remember being in um, Ohio and it was my, I think that was the first time I took my husband to Ohio so he could, you know, meet the family. And we got stopped by the police mm-hmm. and he said, put your hands on the dashboard. And I was like, what? I ain't doing that. You know, I'm already to mm-hmm. be flipped because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's who I am. <laughs> so he was like, put your hands on the dashboard. And I'm like, uh, I'm not doing that. This is ridiculous. So he said, well, look out the mirror. So I looked, I was the passenger. So I looked out my rearview mirror and these cops had shotguns coming to our car. <laughs> I was like, <gasps> my hands went on the dashboard so fast. But right. First, you know, without, I mean, I had never experienced this. I'm thinking, what? Mm. In Ohio, we're good, you know. But um, it was at that moment that I realized this stuff is really real. And if he doesn't answer correctly, because I started thinking then, like, okay, so what's going to happen? Um, am I going to have to drive back to Philly by myself? Like, because you just don't know what's going to happen because they're aggressive. And every time I've gotten stopped after that with him, it's been the same experience. So not just even on, in Virginia, it's been the same experience. So when I say, and then when I started seeing just people, you're just seeing lives just taken. And I'm like, there's no argument. There's no real argument here. This is, this is definitely police brutality. So I think what really jumpstarted, oh yeah, even before that, I think what really jumpstarted or what really impacted me was Trayvon Martin. 
Trayvon Martin impacted me because that was at the time that I had recently started, because I've always written, but I just kind of, you know, did blogs and kind of self-help. That's, that's kind of who I am, self-help, period. So this is when I had started writing for, for Guardian. And because I'm Black, you know, I always did all of the Black stories. And because I'm Black and I'm unapologetically Black. So, you know, I've always handled all of the Black stories and things like that. And so I was covering Trayvon Martin's story. Now, for me, Trayvon Martin's story was cut and dry. It was, so when that verdict came back and George Zimmerman got off, that set a blaze in me that I just have not been able to quench. So, you know, um, I think that I would have to say when I go back, that would probably be the moment that really kind of pushed me like, okay, I got a voice, you know, and I'm going to speak out. And I'm always going to speak out for my people because I see a community who's suffering and through. They don't always have a platform. So however small, however large my platform is, I'm always going to speak out. So to answer your question in one sentence, I think Trayvon Martin kind of started the real flame that burned and didn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you walking us through that, that journey. Uh, I remember Trayvon. I remember um, Michael Brown uh, yes. in Ferguson. Um, but for me, I think what, what set it off, what made it personal was John Crawford III, who I believe was in Ohio. Um, and this was a, a young black man who was at a Walmart in Ohio. Mm-hmm. He was walking around the store, talking to his uh, girlfriend, I think, or baby mama on the phone, planning like his kid's birthday party. And he had a, like an airsoft rifle. Right. He was walking and talking. Someone calls the cops, white person calls the cops. They come in, shoot first, ask questions later, he's gone. The reason that that felt more personal to me than any of the other stories is because I could see myself doing some random shit like that. Like I'm the type of dude that would walk into a Walmart, pick up like a BB gun and just be walking around talking on the phone, just not even thinking about it, right? It was so benign, so random. And so for his life to get snuffed out like that, I'm like, that's when it hit me that this could be me, right? Now, now I'm, I'm protected a little because I'm, I'm lighter skinned, I'm smaller, so I'm, I won't be perceived quite as threatening, right, as, as some other black guys. But, but that was still the moment that like it hit me, shit, this could be me. And, and it also hit me, it never matters what you're doing. It doesn't matter right. if you're technically nope. breaking the law or not. It, it just, it does not matter. You're always a threat, so your life can always be snuffed out. Well, and, um, and not only are, we, are you always a threat, Ben, black people, are the only people who get blamed for their own murder. <laughs> you know, like, how do we get killed? And then all of a sudden, you you going back 10, 20 years. Yep. Oh, they did this, they did that. Like, how do we get the rap sheet for our own murder? Yep, yep. That's, that's ludicrous. Yep. And, and it, that's it, painful. It, it, it's painful, it's traumatic, and it's, it's utterly ridiculous because when, when people do that, we're just, like, disregarding what are supposed to be constitutional protections. So, right. Even if those rap sheets were true, they hardly ever, if ever are. But even if they were, that still doesn't justify gunning someone down. Like, so you're just throwing out the foundation of this country to justify your own internal prejudice and systemic racism that people are experiencing. So you can feel a little bit better when you go to sleep at night and feel a little less guilty, I'm assuming. I, it right. makes no sense. And then people want to throw out the dumbest thing ever, black on black crime. 
You know, so how are you guys mad because police are killing you when you're killing each other? First of all, white people kill white people, Asian people kill Asian people, you right. know, all of these different people kill each other, but we get a label to ours. Yep. And black on black crime is totally different. And I've had this conversation with some of my white, I can't say friends, white <laughs> people say. in my world, because you know, I'm so sick of these people, white people in my world. And they say that, and I say, well, first of all, black on black crime is peer to peer. Whenever somebody has authority, they have to be held at a higher, you know, a, a higher, they their, their accountability level has to be higher. Yep. So how do you equate that to police brutality? Right. It, it, it's no way to equate that. And black on black crime is a myth. Unless mm -hmm. everybody's crime is going to be labeled. But the fact that you label that yep. is just what the whole, this country has, has for years, just look at the television, has for years set it up where black people are these thugs and black people are just criminals and black people are. And for, I, I know so many upstanding, upright black people as I do other right. other nationalities, other, yeah. other races, other ethnicities. So how do we get to be criminalized based on a few people who for real, many times are acting out of their own PTSD? Because if you don't think growing up in these neighborhoods trigger PTSD in these young people, then something's wrong with you. You can't say the military. Oh, I understand the military. This is these people are living in their own Vietnam yeah. every day with no reprieve. For the military, at some point, the war ends. People come home. Those who remain come home. Okay, in these neighborhoods, the war doesn't end, yeah. and they've been in this war since they came out of the womb. So how do we explain that and then dismiss PTSD? Exactly, and and that's the point I often make. Like, if you want to talk about the violence in black neighborhoods okay, let's talk about it. It's a direct result of white supremacy. Like you, you cannot separate, you can draw a direct line from white supremacist policies to young black men gunning other young black men down, right? Like it's, it's a pretty clear line. So if, if you want to talk about it, that's what we're going to talk about, but you don't want right. to talk about that. Like we, we can't no, have that they conversation. Don't talk about that. No, they don't want to. <laughs> mm -hmm. They don't want to No, because you're going to lose. Faith is also really important to you. So did you grow up in a religious tradition that had justice built in, or is that something you've had to kind of find as you have, have gotten older? Well, you know what's, 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 and this is what I say to people a lot too. Like now I go to a predominantly, when I say mm -hmm. predominantly, I mean predominantly white church. Okay. So, <laughs> the difference from the white church and the black church is with, I grew up in a black church. Even when my husband and I pastored, we, well, we had kind of a, a more diversified, you know, congregation, but we can, Again, we can close with so we can talk to anybody. They just right. can't always talk to us. Right. <laughs> I grew up in, in a black church. And you know, in the black church, the difference is that that pastor, our black pastors, even if it wasn't on the scale of a Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. they had to be civil rights activists. Yeah. So they had to speak to the things that concerned their community of people that they were dealing with. Yep. And so that our pastors, yeah. Like they talked about black stuff. We had history lessons as a part of the message mm -hmm. because in order to empower us, you had to speak to where we, you had to come down to where we were, put your hand down, pull us up and then give us a platform to stand on yeah. a soft landing place, you know, even following. So I grew up in an environment where black pastors had to speak. Mm -hmm. If you didn't speak to what was going on around us, your church would be empty mm -hmm. because we grew up looking for hope. Right. That's what we need. We needed hope. And, and even the songs, and I, I, I compare it all the time when people say, what's all this crap with these gospel songs or these, you know, back in the, in the black church, you had a lot of call and response songs, you know, ah, 
and then you know somebody's i'll come this and stuff you know but mm-hmm. because we had to speak to each other mm-hmm. see white people don't they didn't understand that because when they came to church they could come to church and only hear from god quote unquote you know yeah. we had to empower each other we had to pull each other up from the struggles of that week before we could even get to a place where we could hear just a message from God. So we had to sing songs to each other. Like, you know, it's going to be all right, or it is well. <laughs> we don't need to tell God it's well. We need to tell our brothers and sisters, hey, I know what you're dealing with, and it's well. Right. And so we even had different music. But yeah, civil rights, justice, you didn't have a church in the Black community if you weren't mm-hmm. talking about justice, because we were all dealing with it in some form or another. And so how did you find your way to a predominantly white church? Let me tell you, this is <laughs> we <laughs> So when we moved from Philadelphia to Virginia, my husband said right before we moved, would you be upset if I didn't pastor when we get to Virginia? And I was like, oh my God, no, I would not be upset. You know, I would love it. So then we had to, then the challenge was to find a church. So while I love black church and I do like I love just the theatrics of it all you know I didn't want to be in church for 200 hours we wanted to do something else so coming here I said gosh so we knew a couple of churches and I was like they're gonna be in church forever I don't want to do that so I'm sitting in the nailery getting my nails done and I look up and this commercial comes on and I was like yo that seems like they you know, they having a concert in there you know I want to try that church. Yeah. And we visited that church. And when we visited, they were so friendly. That's just kind of how we ended up there. Hmm. So that's, and, the, that's how we ended up in a white church. And is, is this a, one of those unique white congregations um, in which you feel justice is still kind of centered? Or is there kind of work that you're having to do as representatives of black community to remind folks, hey, this is real life. Like, we need to be talking about this. We need to be doing something. Hey, this is real life. We need to be talking mm-hmm. about this. We need to be doing something. Yeah. Um, not optional. Yep. That's where I am with that. It's, yep. it's not optional. So um, if we can't, if, if we figure, if we find that we, we're going to have too much of a struggle trying to do that, then I need to be shifting my focus yep. because that is not optional for me. I'm pretty adamant about, you know, hey, Black Lives Matter. What are we doing about it? Yep. That can be, and from my own experience, that can be pretty tiring. Uh, one of the reasons I was on staff at a, a congregation here in Indianapolis for a couple of years. And one of the reasons I left when I did is because I felt like, um, I felt like the congregation was happy having me on staff. Cause it meant like symbolically the work was being done somehow. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they don't, they don't then have to go out and do the work so I could get up and mm-hmm. preach and talk about it. But, and they like they love my sermons, whatever. But again, like we collectively are not doing the work and that just, that shit gets straining. And that's not what I need for my community as a leader or a member, uh, you know? Right. I, I feel like um, bro, the justice mm-hmm. is the gospel. It is the good news. Yeah. And when we talk about, we can't talk about Jesus effectively and not talk about justice because Jesus came to disrupt mm. all of the injustices that were going on. Every time you read about him encountering somebody or even delivering somebody or even ministering, stopping what caught his attention was oppression. Yep. What caught his attention was inequality, you know, in, in, in any aspect of the world. So the word, so he came here to disrupt these social norms. He came here to disrupt the religious systems. And if you argue that, then that means you aren't reading your Bible. Right. 
Right. Because <laughs> that's the gospel. That yes. is the gospel. Period. Period. When Jesus is feeding the hungry, you know, yep. systemic hunger is a result of the oppression that's taking place. When he's healing people, their illnesses are a result of the oppression that is taking place. Like you, yep. you have to trace it back to the large system, the empire that's at play and that's subjugating his people. He's a resp direct response to the oppression, to the injustice, to your point. So yeah, you can't read the gospel. You shouldn't be able to read the gospel without seeing that if, uh, if you do. And a lot of people somehow manage to. Well, you know what, Ben, I ask people all the time, when is the last time Jesus changed your mind about something? <laughs> because mm. you can't spend time with him. Your mind isn't changed because there were things that I thought or even things that I would have been adamant about, like, oh, nope, God can't be in that years ago. But the more I spend time with him and the more I learned that, first of all, his ways are not our ways. And it's not just scripture. His ways literally are not our ways. Yeah. Um, his thoughts are not our thoughts. They're so much higher because they're so they're on a whole a grander scale than our finite minds can even comprehend. And when we think that we have a market, a corner to the market on truth, we are so deceived yeah. because we don't own him and we don't we don't have we don't own that level of truth. And truth that I love truth is layered from the inside out. Mm. So who am I to tell somebody that they aren't? with who they say they are, <laughs> that they don't feel the way they feel. And just this whole thing, and I know you didn't ask about this, but this whole thing with um, the LGBTQ community. And I'm saying that because, again, one of the things I found out that's a problem with evangelicals is Black Lives Matter organization because of who they support. Yep. And I'm like, well, are you telling me that the lifestyle means that the life doesn't matter? <laughs> is that what we're saying? Because I don't care what they support or what kind of lifestyle they support, their life still matters. Yep. And who are we for me to tell them, tell that community that everything about them is wrong is the same way white people are telling me everything about black people or everything that you're saying is wrong because yep. they haven't lived in my body. They don't know my story. Yep. So I, I'm relating to America as a black person in this, in this country. Yep. They're relating to America as whatever their truth is in this country. Yep. So I don't get to speak to that and judge that because I haven't lived that. Yep. This will be uh, the final question. Then I've got two ways that I typically end the podcast. Um, okay. Okay. Let's go. What, Let's do it. As, as you think about all you've come through and as you look at all that's happening in our world, you know, we've got a pandemic, we've got racial unrest, we've got, I don't know, symbolic changes, still waiting on real change. Um, mm -hmm. But what inspires you to hope for a, a better future? What inspires me to hope for a better future, I'd have to say is, well, first of all, let me just say, yeah, I'm a little sick right now. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> the mm -hmm. Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. Yep. So yeah, my hope is deferred. But what, what um, enables me to hope for a better future, for real, for real, it's just because I know the one who created me. I know the one who created all of this. And at the end, he's going to somehow bring this all together. And this is one of those things that's been employed by us to work for our good. So outside of that, I probably wouldn't have a lot of hope. That's why I, I don't get so frustrated when I see, um, and even though a lot of the riots aren't started by us, they're started by other people, but sure. I don't get upset when I see riots or when I see um you know, us acting in, in a manner that maybe um, doesn't serve us well, because I know that it's just unharnessed rage and that we're dealing with a group of people who said, okay, so I'm fighting for what my great, 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 
great parents were fighting for. I'm still fighting for that same thing. So yeah, hope has been deferred. So of course they're gonna act out in the way they act. But for me, because I because I know who controls all of this, I can have a sense of hope. But I can also look at other people who don't have it with some grace because there was a day when I didn't have any hope. So my thing is that even if I don't live to see it, I know in the end we have to win. We have to win <laughs> because love always wins and God is love. <laughs> He's in control. So that's what keeps me looking towards tomorrow saying, okay, I don't know when, I don't know how, but at some point, this has got to get better for our people and for other, other people. With yeah. Injustice everywhere is an issue for me. Yeah. So it's got to get better for all people because in the end, we have to win. Mm -hmm. Amen. So um, one of the things I like to do to close these episodes is to see if my guests have a question they want to ask me. Sometimes people get through a whole episode and they they really love the idea of asking me a question for a change um, for whatever reason. So I want to give you that same opportunity. Is there a question that you want to posit to me for me to, to, to answer before we close out here? Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, let me first of all say, Ben, I love how you just operate so smoothly, you know, um, in both sex. Let me say it like mm -hmm. that. Both sex, because I know that we, we have been taught, and I don't know if you've been taught that, but um, in Christendom, we've been taught that there are dual kingdoms, yep. even though there's really just one kingdom, <laughs> you know, right. got dual entities um, that are at the forefront. Hmm. But how you just navigate back and forth so smoothly is so, that's so awesome to me. Hmm. Um, it, it's awesome and it's rewarding just to see it, having known a lot of stuff that you've dealt with and i don't even know all of it but we talked right. so i know a lot of it um what keeps you going what keeps you up you get up in the morning i mean mm -hmm. i watch you. you first of all before my eyes open good you've already put an instagram video <laughs> up so what gets you going i think two things one you know i i already mentioned that i i'm aware that i'm an exception to a lot of rules and through my life, I've seen a lot of people that didn't get the breaks that I got, that didn't didn't get the opportunities for healing, um, the opportunities to live a different life that I got. And, and so if I can live in such a way that I have a chance to, to use the gifts that I've been given to help inspire someone else, to help empower someone else, to help someone else tap into the depth of their own wisdom and authority, then that that's like one of my deepest senses of purpose. Um, and so, so those moments are moments that I, I live for where I can remind people how powerful they are, how wonderful they are. Um, as someone who hasn't always felt that, I know what a gift it is to feel that, you know? And so if I can bestow that gift to someone else, um, that's, that's amazing. So I think, I think that's, that's one thing. Um, and then, Sharice, I'm just, I'm on a constant journey of healing and I, I kind of refuse to stop until I, I can heal as much as possible. Right. And so, you know, when I go to bed, if I know the work ain't done, then yeah. I'm going to keep going. You know, exactly. I, there's, there's always more. Um, and every time I've reached a new level of healing, I've experienced life and myself more fully, more holistically. And, and so that gives me hope for the next levels, no matter what I got to go through to get there. And so it's just that, that promise of 
being new levels of myself to unlock new ways to heal, um, new ways to open up new things to learn. That also keeps me kind of putting one foot in front of the other day in and day out, even if it feels impossible. You know, and one thing you said that not well, one thing in particular that you said that if you can just show people um, the wisdom, you know, just that's inside of them. Yeah. I love when you said that because that's something that, you know, we often say even with our clients or when I, when usually typically when I get up to speak out, you know, I introduce with that, that, you know, my, my life is all about empowerment. Mm-hmm. I don't come necessarily to help people because if I help you, that means that I'm at a different angle than you. That means that I, I'm higher than you. Yeah. I, I'm not here to help you because that means I have something and you're deficient in that area. Yeah. I'm here to empower you because all I need to do is show you how to flip this light switch on and see what's already inside of you because what's in me that keeps me going, it's already inside of you. It's just the power of purpose. And I can't give you purpose, but I can help you flip that switch on. And again, I just said purpose, purpose, but it's the same thing. Show you the wisdom that's inside of you so that you can take yourself and say, you know what? I got this. Even if it's just for just one more day, I got this. Well, thank you again, Sharice, for being here. You dropped some incredible truths uh, and it spoke to my heart. And so I'm sure it spoke to the listeners' hearts as well. So I just appreciate you taking time today. Let's do it again one day. I'm down. I'm always down. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths Podcast. Unfortunately, due to some technical issues, the very end of my interview with my sister Sharice was cut off. But as you can tell from what you heard, Sharice is a literal powerhouse of inspiration. So if you appreciated what she had to say and want to know more about her, I encourage you to check out the podcast she has with her husband, Early. It can be found on Spotify, and it's called The Inconvenient Truth with Sharice and Early. The podcast description says it's all fun and games until some truth hits you in the face. Sharice and Early pair up to make this hard-hitting podcast a must-hear. From pop culture, empowerment, to theology, there is no telling what topics will jump off. And having listened to a couple episodes, I can attest to this. The podcast is unique because it it mixes hard-hitting truth-telling with an ease of conversation that you can tell has been cultivated from their years of relationship. So if you want to be engaged about issues that relate not just to the black community, but to our culture at large in an easy manner, I encourage you to give them a listen. They've got two seasons out, and it can be found on Spotify. It's called The Inconvenient Truth with Sharice and Early. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Invisible Truths Podcast. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.